Welcome to Conversations About Care, a podcast for pediatric clinical providers. Hi, this is Sandy Hassink, and I'm the Medical Director for the Institute of Healthy Childhood Weight at the American Academy of Pediatrics. I recently sat down with my colleague, Dr. Amy Christensen, pediatrician and director of the Healthy Kids U Weight Management Clinic at the University of Illinois Medical School to discuss the impact screen time is having on children and adolescents during the COVID-19 pandemic. We continue to hear stories about how kids are more sedentary and have disrupted routines because they're spending more time on screens. Dr. Christensen offers some clear steps for pediatricians to engage families on the topic of screen time. Stay tuned to hear our conversation. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Sandra Hassink. I'm the medical director of the AAP Institute for Healthy Childhood Weight. And I'm talking today with Dr. Amy Christensen, a pediatrician at the University of Illinois College of Medicine in Peoria, Illinois. Amy has been taking care of children with obesity for a long time as director of the Healthy Kids U Weight Management Program. And we're here today to just mull over what's happening with our children uh, now during the COVID epidemic, particularly with screen time. So welcome, Amy. It's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me to speak. So I'd like to start out, Amy, by just asking you, you've been uh, taking care of children with obesity for a long time. What you interested uh, in taking care of of these kids? Wow, yeah, that, that takes me back to about 1990 when I first started practice as a neonatal pediatrician. Um, and, you know, at the time I was so keen on retroviruses, thinking that was going to take over the world. But, you know, as I kind of took care of families and patients over time, I really noticed that my children, my patients were expanding. Um, and maybe some of the threats as we were kind of looking forward uh, with the population of children I was caring for every day was that, you know, they were really having excess weight gain. What I thought was really an interesting observation, though, at the time was that they seemed to be exercising their thumbs more than they were their bodies. You know, they were just sitting there in front of a screen, you know, moving their thumbs around. And I thought, hmm this might be an opportunity. Um, so that's when I partnered with the Park District and we opened at that time one of the largest active gaming studios, you know, to do group management and to see if we couldn't leverage some of this technology for good rather than quote unquote evil as I was seeing it at that time. Uh, certainly things have changed since then though. You know, they really have in terms of children's access to screens. So we don't have these large sort of equipment that's available to do active gaming. Now it's all streaming and readily accessible, both sedentary and active gaming. So it's a very different time than in the early 90s, but that's kind of what got me interested in this whole topic. So Amy, as you've uh, moved through this trajectory of looking at gaming and screen time, um, what have you been concerned about recently, particularly during the COVID pandemic? Well, I think that it's so amazing to see how everyone, children and families alike, have been thrown off. Um, and a lot of it I, I've noticed is that it just seems to have really impacted their daily routine. You know, there's this whole notion about summer where there isn't a structured daily sort of activity for everybody. And the same sort of notion has then translated over to every day for over a year now, 
where people have been stuck at home and then their routines are completely off. There's nothing structured, including, you know, their activity and their eating habits. So, you know, and it, it's, it's really interesting to me how it's um, also affected their sleep, you know, especially the, uh, you know, before it was all the teenagers in the summer, but now it's the, the middle school and the teenagers and some of the younger kids who this last year have not been sleeping. They turned into what I call vampires. Say, like, oh, you're a vampire, you know, and, and they've been, you get these stories, they're up all night long gaming, streaming videos, um, whatever shows they're watching, it's four o'clock, five o'clock in the morning, and they sleep in until three or four o'clock in the afternoon, and they're crabby, and they're irritable and everybody's crabby in the household. It's just really kind of a, a very difficult situation. Their moods are terrible. Well, you know, I've always thought that the screens were a lure for children and adolescents to trade active daytime for inactive nighttime. So when, they, when you see them morph their schedules into nighttime, there's not much to do except screen time. You know, and that becomes kind of the lure uh, pulling them into the night. And then if they're sleeping till one, two or three, they're trading daylight hours, potentially active daylight hours for, for nighttime hours. How do you, how, when you have a kid and we've all seen children and adolescents in that position, uh, uh, previously during summer and now during COVID, getting their schedules sort of reversed, how do you start to uh, handle that or help the family reverse that? We're all looking forward to school starting and um, we know that if you have a flipped schedule, that's going to be really tough in those first weeks of school for the kids to get up and at them. Yeah, for sure. And I think with all of our conversations, we're, we're kind of identifying problematic behaviors, right? Um, you know, we may point it out as problematic as physicians, but they may not see it that way or what's behind it all. Um, and so, you know, as a lot of my conversations go with health habits in general, you know, I think the first question is really eliciting from them, asking them, you know, what seems to, what about screen time, you know, really seems to do good things for you? And what seems to be problematic? You know, what does it get in the way of, you know, your well-being or your health? And um, and sometimes you get different answers from kids and their parents, which I think is fantastic. I love these conversations, um, but it's a really great starting point, you know, because then, you know, this is not this, and, and this is something that I have a little bit of pet peeve on, you know, it's like, and I'm all about general messaging. These things are really important, they're guidelines. You know, our, our families want to have conversations that are really targeted at their own needs and wants you know, where their opportunities are. They're very personalized when they have conversations with us. And that's why I love that starting point because then yeah. it helps them self-identify, you know, what's working, what's not working. And again, you get different perspectives from the kid and the, and the caregiver. Um, and, then, and then we can have this conversation that's very targeted to what their needs and wants are. You know, and then, you know, it's not just me telling them what they should be doing. You've got two hours or less of screen time. I'll see you next year. Um, really what this is about is, is to really help them self-identify, you know, what are the concerns, if there are any. And then they're more likely to make a change and to do something about it. And um, I think for all of us, we feel like sometimes these conversations are a little futile with our families. But when they do those self-reflections and kind of bring out to the forefront, 
you know, what is a strength and what is problematic about these behaviors, uh, boy, then they're certainly more willing to make a change, you know, and I've done that over and over in my practice and, and seen it in some of the research I've done. So what a great, and I love that question and um, always tried to ask what's working about this for you first, rather than what's not working. And you're right, you get a real insight into their lives. Can you share a little bit with our audience some of the answers that may have surprised you or what some of the families might have said about what's working for them about screen time? Oh, I love that. And, you know, again, it's not just like food, right? You know, there is nothing that's truly intense, like inherently evil necessarily. Um, and so there can be some asset building when you're talking about screens. So some of, some of the surprising things, you know, for instance, I had this one child that came to me just very recently um, for weight management. And, you know, I gave him a menu of options of where his opportunities were with the health behaviors. And so I said, it's your choice. You know what I want to work on first. And he says, look, don't touch my screen time. I'm like, okay, we won't go there. You know, and then you find out from him, you know, he was very isolated. You know, maybe he felt a little socially awkward. It was very difficult to connect with kids, and especially in this pandemic situation, right? You know, everybody's like in their own home. And it was his one time, and it, let me also preface this by the fact that his family situation, there was a lot of family disharmony. Um, it was a very tense household. And so this was his one way he could connect with others and to kind of find some relief from that tension. Mm -hmm. And then um, without that interpersonal, in-person sort of awkwardness and anxiety he had, because I think he had social anxiety as well. And so I was really surprised, you know, you know, I said, oh, you know, that's fine. You know, tell me, tell me more. And then he goes into this whole story and, and you could see that this was the one asset he had for decompression, for coping, and then for him to, to connect with others socially during the pandemic. Well, Amy, you bring up such a good point because kids use what they have when they're in distress. They turn to what is available to help themselves. It could be food. It could be screen time. You know, it could be, uh, you know, outside activities, but they do turn to things to help themselves. And this, this little guy or big guy that you're talking about was really turning to screen time to help himself with social anxiety and to relieve some of the distress. And I'm guessing that knowing that was a very different conversation than had you not known that about him. It really was. And we had so many other opportunities where he could work on his habits that he was so motivated to work on. You know, and I think that over time what we did was then recognize that strength or the asset that, that the screen time was, but try to figure out how we could do, use it intentionally rather than from an unmonitored, sort of unregulated, this is going to be my whole life, you know, all day long during the day hours. Um, and so, you know, to me, I feel like everything's a trade-off, you know. And so it was a matter of, you know, his increasing his physical activity, you know, during those other hours, how do we shift things a bit? Um, how do we then also try to change up his health habits with how he eats? And as it then relates to screen time, because some of these kids are definitely doing unmonitored, isolated eating, you know, when they're um, in their rooms, either socially interacting, but also obviously, you know, some of the other problematic stuff that's related to 
um, online gaming or like streaming devices, right? And so it was really a matter of figuring out, okay, yeah, this does something for you, but we can also see if it takes up seven hours of, of your waking hours, you know, that could be a problem. And, and he would be able to see that. Now, he was pretty limited with that three or four hours in comparison to some of my vampire kids who are on screens probably for every waking hour or even during the day. So, you know, there are ways that we can manage that as well, but definitely from a childhood standpoint, you were, you were kind of alluding to, and we were talking about the notion of coping and how screens can help, but are screens really the only way that people can cope? Mm -hmm. Is that the only tool out there? And so shifting this conversation about recognizing their distress personally and how they manage it um, and knowing, yeah, this has been a terrible year, you like, we all feel it, all of us do, you know, you're not alone. Um, and boy, this is such a great opportunity that we have together because, you know, at your age, I wish somebody came to me and said, you know what, is it okay if I share with you maybe some other tools that other people use that help them cope with that distress? You know, it, it certainly makes sense that, you know, you don't only have a hammer on the toolbox, you got a screwdriver mm -hmm. and you got a wrench, you know, it's really great to be able to have those tools, be able to be good with them. And all your life, no matter what comes at you, you'll be able to choose one of those tools to be able to help you manage how you are feeling and how you are dealing with what's coming at you. And so, yeah, you know, I recognize, I acknowledge that, you know, screens are helpful for you. This is fantastic. I'm so glad you found that. On the other hand, what do you think about the idea of other tools? And then we have this conversation and it's amazing. Like, you know, and they can even name other things. You know, I, I often say, what's worked for you in the past? You know, in addition to, not instead of, and that way they don't feel threatened. And we have this very meaningful conversation and it's really cool. They, they self-identify other things that help them cope. And, you know, a lot of artists are out there. So they'll bring their artwork in. And to me, I think that's so incredible. It's an incredible outlet. And so I think our children, um, you know, when I think about problematic screen time, you know, what it does for them, but what it takes away. I really think about, first of all, in the back of my mind, how I categorize this is what's going on with the kid himself or herself. You know, is this a coping mechanism to some emotional distress? Is it their only means of socialization for that time or what they would feel most comfortable with? Or is it getting in the way because it's impacting their sleep or their mood or their eating habits or their education or their relationships with their family member? Um, and then does this child have some underlying sort of propensity towards problematic screening, screen time because they have self-regulation or, or uh, executive function problems, you know? Um, and then, you know, how comfortable does this child on the trade-off of physical activity feel with being physically active? Maybe that's not their comfort level. And so finding that thing that helps them move that they're comfortable with might be another conversation. So when it comes to the child, these are the things that are coming, you know, in the back of my mind as we're having these conversations. Um, and then you hear the parent side of things, right? You know, or the caregiver <laughs> side, which I think is really also yeah. interesting. Okay. And, you know, I, I think that when I'm looking back, Sandy, as we kind of talked about, hey, how did you first get interested in all of this? Well, 
gosh, you know, um, it's amazing how um, I did a lot of hospital medicine, too, and I can't forget the first time I walked into an exam room or a, a hospital room making hospital rounds, and there was a couple with a child in the hospital, and they were sitting on either end of the couch. So they were sitting on either end of the couch, and they were texting each other as I was walking in. They weren't talking. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I thought to myself, wow, this is a new day, right? Um, and so all of us, you know, this resonates with us. Or we're walking into restaurants and, like, you know, what do you see at the table? These families. And we now we're seeing that more, you know, not during the COVID, but, like, but this happens at home at the dinner table in their bedrooms. Like, during mealtime or they're in a restaurant, what are they doing? They're all on their individual screens. Nobody's talking, mm -hmm. you know. And if you translate that to the home life, and this is the story I get from everybody, it's like, you know, how is it that everybody's interacting with them as family? You know, what is that family function like? They're each in their own separate spaces on their, like, devices. Um, and so, you know, what does this do for families? Well, you know, for a lot of very busy families, caregivers who are very stressed, you know, they, they view, like, being in everybody's little quiet corner as a stress reliever. They're coming home from work. They're decompressing. Mm -hmm. You know, I remember my dad coming home from work in, uh, lots of decades ago. Like, he would turn on the news as soon as he came in. Don't talk to him, right? You know, we all have our decompression things. So yeah. you can really see how this is valuable to families. But then when it becomes problematic, you can really see how the family becomes disengaged. Mm -hmm. And if I were to say anything about how this is taking away from our family, is, is generations of disengaged parenting and family members. And I'm mm -hmm. seeing it bleed out in so many different ways. But specific to excessive weight gain and health habits, you know, I see that they're not sitting at the table eating. Everybody's kind of in their rooms eating in front of screens. Um, there's no modeling. Um, the parenting style has become much more permissive and passive. So there's a lot of unmonitored eating, unmonitored problematic screen time, unmonitored sleep time. And from a parenting standpoint, you know, how is it that our children learn how to deal with stress in uncomfortable situations and how to uh, eat without food, like drooling out of our mouths <laughs> while we're talking. I'm still yeah. learning that, though. Um, you know, how is it that we, how do we get along? You know, um, all those things are done within a family environment, but we're seeing less and less of that. And that's where screens can be a problem with how that family milieu and function is. And then the last thing in the back of my mind that I'm thinking about as I'm kind of evaluating and kind of assessing is trying to figure out, well, you know, where are those screens? You know, do they get charged in the kitchen when everybody's asleep? You know, are they by the mm -hmm. bedside? Nobody knows. Is the neighborhood safe or not? And so maybe the neighborhood's a threat so that you have to stay indoors and this is what you feel that you can only do. And then what is that built environment surrounding that family? Um, is there a place for their other children that can safely socialize outdoors, you know? And so these are the kinds of things in the back of my mind as I'm listening and asking and trying to find out more from families where screens fit in their lives 
um, I, I have that sort of rubric in my head so that I can kind of figure out more solutions based or menus of options based upon what their situation is so that we're contextualizing their care. Amy, that was so wonderful. I love getting a glimpse into into just how how you're you're uh, looking at the patient and and looking at all like turning the situation in all 360 degrees to see what's happening. One thing that struck me so much about the case you presented was the desire of the little boy to have social interaction, like that desire. So there's an avoidance. I don't want to be in the high stress situation, maybe with my parents, but the deep desire for social interaction. And my my feeling is that that deep desire exists among our patients and families. And um, I think uh, it is a strength. And I wonder how you might play on that strength, that deep desire to interact. Maybe it's taking its form across the screen to help families sort of um, tap into that. Yeah, I think that's such an important question. Um, and, you know, I think we are wired to be social beings, which has made this last year even more difficult for all of us. You know, how do we connect? Um, and even the most introverted of ourselves, I hear from families, you know, I'm an introvert, but. So I, I think you're right. And um, I think that we have a need to be social. Um, and. It's really about relationships, isn't it? But then if a child views a relationship as a threat, that can be problematic. Um, and so being able to find ways for this child and the family to socialize in a way that is a safe environment for them, however they view that. And again, this has to do with that contextualization, right? And so it's not an all or nothing right or wrong way. Uh, to me, I feel that it's, you know, where are they with their comfort level and their ability to socialize, um, knowing that this is what they want, right? They want acceptance, they want love, they want uh, connection, right? And I would say that, um, you know, I feel like the, the um, social media platforms, they can be a strength and they can be a hindrance to that because in some ways, it, it's kind of like a, it, it's a rather, Oh, how shall I say? It's not a very realistic or real way. It's an artificial form of socialization, in a sense, right? Mm -hmm. um, because what's being posted and the images and what's being shared isn't always truth. It, it can be a bit altered. Um, and so I think we have to be a bit cautious and careful about that on one hand, but on the other hand, it can be very empowering. It can be inspiring. Um, and so whether it's this passive, there are other kids just like you and this is how you connect, right, and relate and uh, normalize your experiences together, you know, whether there are some group chats about weight management or about other things, um, that can be very, very powerful. Um, even online gaming, you know, with your friends and it's the only time that you can connect and maybe you have social anxiety, so the notion of somebody seeing you in person and having to talk and somebody react to that is a very, very uncomfortable situation for you, but you can then like talk on a, a headset and you yeah. know, do your gaming and role playing. So, you know, I don't think that's wrong. I think it's a, a good way to connect, but then, you know, the question is then moving forward as we are going through adulting and we are developing, 
uh, what skills are we developing and stretching into so that we become very functional social beings as adults, right. where there are some more potential threats out in the real world and society. You know, life yeah. is not easy. The real world can be very, very harsh. And, you know, our desire as pediatricians and as parents is that we would love for our children to grow up and feel prepared for what comes at our children, right? And developing those tools and develop those skills and developing those tools. And so it's really meeting that child where he or she is, but then kind of figuring out another safe next and guiding them to be able to be more social in a quote unquote real way and less of an artificial way yeah. so that they can stretch, feel a little bit of that uncomfortableness, but then to grow. And I think that that's a really important thing. So it could be a one-on-one -on -one play time, somebody that comes over that's well-matched as a friend. Um, it can be, you know, for my patients with group management, it can be doing group, you know, um, and a lot of our rec centers and our, our YMCAs are now really focused on having children and families that have excess weight that, you know, normalizing this. Um, I, I am so excited to see that with every group that we have, there's always a couple of kids who have autism. And to see the other kids and families embrace them and to help them feel confident about their movement and for families and children to normalize their experiences together, to be very relatable. You know, this is a very safe environment to try to learn how to be physically active have these conversations, you know, for a lot of my patients with social anxiety, I'll say, you know, would you be open to just coming? You don't even have to enroll. Just come and see what you think. You can stand at the door. It's fine. You know, and, and some of this could be underlying anxiety issues. Some of this could be some very, very distressing uh, situations in their past with social situations at school. You know, the victimization that they undergo through bullying can be horrific. And then, you know, so, I would say nine times out of ten, these kids will stay and they continue. And you see these big, yeah. bright faces, smiles on their faces. And I think it's so powerful. So, Amy, I'm so glad you spoke about groups. And I'm flashing back to an adolescent group we had. We taught cooking to the adolescents. And we had the adolescents in a group. And we met with the parents separately several times during the uh, group meetings. And the adolescents would cook and then bring food home to the family. And the parents overwhelmingly said, I now have something positive to talk to my adolescent about. They needed something positive to interact around. And it was a thing that, you know, it was a skill. It was a physical activity, cooking, cooking together is a, so often I'll, I'll, if parents are interested, suggest cooking because it is a way to interact. It doesn't put all the stress on conversation. You're actually doing something together. So, you know, I just uh, remember fondly the parent, how uh, excited the parents were to be participating in this with adolescents and having something positive to, to talk about with their kids. So um, I think families really, really want that. They do. So Amy, um, I just thank you so much for being with me today and having this wonderful discussion. Um, any last things you'd like folks out there to just think about in terms of screen time when they're interacting with their patients before we wrap up? 
Yeah, so, you know, what I like to do is, is really to maybe have like a menu of options that I can offer to families, depending on, you know, how they self identify that screen time can be problematic for them. Um, and uh, it's not uncommon where I have them walk in and you have this exasperated parent. <laughs> and you know, their kid won't get off of their screen. They're all yelling at them. You know, there, there's a lot of tension about this topic. Um, and so um, several solutions, and I've got like a list of menu of options depending on what they come up with. Um, but several things that I'll offer are things like, for instance, um, maybe earning or trading um, certain sorts of either chores or physical activity hours for extra screen time. Um, another thing is when I have my vampires, especially our kids that are really problematic gamers, quote unquote, I will say, um, just the thought of even uh, having an activity break. You know, so they'll, you know, they can see themselves like every hour, they'll pause their game and they take a 15 minute break. And I said, think about it, you know, you do four hours of gaming, that's a whole hour of physical activity that you just integrated into that. And I'm not telling you to not game. I'm just saying, hey, what do you think about an activity break? And that's very doable for them when, when they're like hours, like every waking hours on the screen. Um, you know, it can be, you know, putting um, phones and screens on charging stations uh, at a certain time every night so everybody's asleep. Um, it could be, um, you know, screen field, uh, screen free and family meal times, so they can kind of be very intentional about that. Um, sometimes people have conversation cards on their tables, you know, and that way it gives them a start for some of their conversations instead of the screen, so it gives them something to do instead of. Um, and then being very intentional, intentional about scheduling screen time. Um, so, you know, maybe everybody needs that decompression at a certain hour every day. So that's the family screen time. Everybody like goes in their corners, you know, but at a certain time, you know, those things are off and we do something different. So it's really being like using the screens for the family advantage, you know, taking a look at the cadence of the day and see where it's useful to them. And then they can schedule it in rather than just defaulting, recognizing what it does for them. Um, and then um, maybe some other things is recognizing that our families, their uh, neighborhood situations really viewed as a threat. Um, so then being able to leverage with streaming, what's available there to really use their technology to stay active. Um, and it's amazing how even just streaming YouTube Just Dance, and I'm not, you know, endorsing anything one or another, though I would just say the Moana dance is my favorite. Um, you know, that like having a dance break, you know, um, it's amazing the things that that families can find to do and also leverage that technology for their health, even when they feel like their their surrounding neighborhood could be a possible threat. Um, so those are just some things that I have in the back of my mind as menus of options that I'll just suggest depending on what they share with me and that way we're contextualizing the caring with them, kind of pick and choose what resonates with them. Yes. So again, thank you so much. I really enjoyed our conversation. Um, I hope we can have you back at some time in the future as we make this journey with our kids and families back to uh, post-COVID times. So thanks, Amy. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to my conversation today with Amy about screen time. 
and strategies to address sedentary behaviors. Also, be sure to check out some of these relevant resources, including the Family Media Plan on HealthyChildren.org, Episode 7 of Conversations About Care on Physical Activity, and the following AAP policy statements, Children, Adolescents, and Media, Media Use in School-Aged Children and Adolescents, Physical Activity Assessment and Counseling in Pediatric Clinical Settings, and The Power of Play, a Pediatric Role in Enhancing Development in Young Children. Thank you for listening. information, resources, or opinions expressed during the Conversations About Care podcast series are solely those of the individuals and do not necessarily represent those of the American Academy of Pediatrics. The topics included in these podcasts do not indicate an exclusive course of treatment or serve as a standard of medical care. Variations taking into account individual circumstances may be appropriate. The primary purpose of this podcast is to explore common themes related to quality pediatric care from the perspective of clinicians. This podcast series does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. This podcast is available for private, non-commercial use only. Advertising, which is incorporated into, placed in association with, or targeted toward the content of this podcast without the expressed approval and knowledge of the American Academy of Pediatrics podcast developers is forbidden. You may not edit, modify, or redistribute this podcast.